You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Good morning, church. It's my great privilege today to introduce to you one of my really good friends in life. Uh, He's an author. He's written a book called Messy Grace. He's also just released a book called The God of Tomorrow and uh, is just a great friend. We did college young adult ministry at the church I was at before we came here. So uh, Caleb and I would reach out and love on uh, probably 450 college students every Sunday night in addition to all the other things we were doing at a very large church. Uh, But what I love about Caleb is his life, his integrity, uh, his character. And right now you need to know that God had you has used his experience and his past to really be a voice in our culture for how to love people without sacrificing your convictions. I think after today, you're not only going to be enriched personally in your life and how to engage culture. uh, I think you're going to take today's message. You're going to share it with friends and family and other people. But will you give a warm Sun Grove welcome to my friend, Caleb Kaltenbach. Sungrove, how are we doing today? Good? All right. Hey, you know, I know it's early, but we're going to have to do that over again because that's not good. How are we doing today? Good? All right. Good. Hey, uh, like you said, my name is Caleb, and I'm so glad to be able to be with you. Um, I love Dave. I love Mike and Mindy and Heather, and you've got a great team here, and I hope you know that you have a great church here. And maybe uh, you're new and somebody invited you today and you haven't been to church in a while, or, or maybe this whole thing is new to you and you're just not sure what to think about it and you thought you'd come to church and the songs are a little bit different. You're like, wow, the, the, the curtains go up and down. And you're like, this is, a, this is a really great place. And I hope that you'll come back and you'll hear Dave preach next week as he closes out this series that we're in right now called Be Intentional. So uh, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, no matter how long you've been here, I'm glad that you're here and I want to let you know that. And I really honestly feel like I know you guys because I hear about you from Dave and and Mike all the time, but you don't know about me. So let me tell you about me. I love movies. Anybody else in here, you're just kind of a movie buff. And when I say I love movies, I mean, I I don't mean like Redbox or or, uh, Apple TV. I love the old fashioned way, going to a dark movie theater and sitting next to strangers where you have no idea what their criminal background is whatsoever. And, and hanging out with them for two to three hours or whatever. And when my uh, wife and I first got married, we actually went to the movies over and over and over again before children, when we actually had a life. Some of you remember that, right? And, and we loved to go see movies, but then we kind of flew into a depression because we couldn't get pregnant. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't get pregnant. We handled our depression differently. I was destructive and, and threw myself into my work, and, and she was much more destructive and started watching chick flicks and Hugh Grant movies and Twilight over and over again. And I was just like, we're going to get you pregnant one way or another because this has got to end in our household. So we went to a fertility clinic, and we got pregnant with my son, Joel, who's now 10, on our first try, and with my daughter, Rachel, on our second try. And I love them both, and she's now eight. But I've got to tell you about Joel, because Joel, I mean, his birth was just unique. I could not wait until we got to the hospital, because I knew what to expect. I'd seen the movies, right? I knew that when the baby came out, there would be this underscoring epic John Williams music. A light from heaven would shine down. He would come out pristine clean, grab my finger. His first words in that moment would be, Father, and there would just be this connection. And that is not what happened. We, we, you know, everything was going great when we got to the hospital until the pain hit my wife. And she became somebody I had not exchanged vows with at that point. 
And I put my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her, and she said, don't you touch me right now. And I said, okay, Linda Blair, Emily Rose, whatever your name is, I'm going to be over here in the corner. And they gave her drugs, and she went back to loving God and others at that point. And then everything was going great again until it was time for the actual birth. And the doctor comes in and takes off half the bed and puts what looks like a big plastic mat all over the floor. And she and the other nurses are putting on what looks like a hazmat outfit and a welding mask. And I went up to the doctor. I said, I'm the only one that's not covered in here. Something getting ready to explode. And she said, hang on, Dad, it's going to be okay. And so the doctor gets in the football position to catch my son. And he comes out, and literally as he's coming out, I look at him, and my expression goes from this to, oh. I mean, he came out, and he was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. And his head was just a shape, like rectangular cone, Saturday Night Live, Dan Aykroyd, I have no idea. And, and I mean, he like, had stuff on him that I had never seen before in my entire life. And, and he didn't make cute little cooing baby noises. He came out and he, he made noises like, and I told the doctor, I said, I think he wants to go back. He's not done cooking yet. And they wrap him up in a, in a blanket, and they give him to me. And if you know me, I don't always have a filter. And these were my first words about my son. They said, what do you think? And I said, he looks like a turtle. <laughs> and when I held my daughter, Rachel, for the very first time, she looked like this big, red, juicy ladybug. And, 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 man, it was just such a messy experience. And if you had been there, and some of you have been there before, you know that it's messy. But something happened in that moment. And I, don't, I can't explain it where it came from, but in that moment... I just loved my son when I was holding him, and I just loved my daughter. And, and these two individuals had never done anything for me. As a matter of fact, they've gotten me sick. They've taken my money, right? They've taken years off my life so far. But at the same time, I'm holding them, and, I, and I, it's just like, man, I don't care what you look like, turtle or not, you are my child. And for some of you, this is going to be the first time that you've ever heard this. Others of you, you've heard it before but maybe you get a little indifferent towards it, so I want to tell you again, okay? God loves you. God, that's how God feels about you, because God loves messy people, okay? God loves messy people. He looks past the mess in your life, and he looks at you, and he says, that's my child, and I love my child. Now, now that's not how the society treats us, the world, right? You see, society likes to define us by the mess in our life. They like to slap labels on us, put us in categories, and define us because when you put somebody in a category, put a label on them, it's easy to just gloss over them. Society likes to define us and say, okay, you've got money problems. You're on your fifth marriage over here. You can't handle your kids. You have no relationship with your parents. You keep on cutting. You keep on using. You can't beat this. You can't hold down a job. You, you, you. And society loves to label and categorize us. But here's what God does, and this is one of the reasons personally why I love following Jesus is that God actually looks past the mess, rips off the labels, takes us out of the categories, and he says, that's my child. And I love my child, no matter how messy you are, because we got to own that, right? We're messy. I mean, the first two letters of the word messy are M-E, right? <laughs> messy. Now, I love that. I love the fact that God loves messy people like me, but I don't like the fact that God loves messy people like Bob. You ever met Bob? You don't want to get in conversation with Bob in, in your work. 
You get in a conversation with Bob, he just talks, 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 and you feel like your foot is stuck in a bear trap. You're like, how do I chew myself out of that conversation? <laughs> you got Mary over here, and like you thought you and Mary were great, and then you find out Mary's been gossiping about you to other people. She had this big party. She did not invite you, by the way. And you're like, oh. And I think to myself, how do we love messy people, difficult people, people that are different from us, people that are nothing like us, people that vote differently? And for some of you, the messy people are actually in your house. Have you ever gotten in a fight on your way to church as a family? That's fun, isn't it? Like you're getting in a fight and you're fighting on your way in the, in the car, or the van, or the whatever, and you pull up to church and somebody turns around and says, okay, this is not over. You put on your game face. You get inside, you're like, hi, how are you doing? Yeah. And then you're sitting next to your spouse or whoever and you keep on elbowing. You listen to what he has to say right now. You need to give your life to Jesus all over again after that. <laughs> right? We're surrounded by messy people who are difficult, who vote differently, who don't understand us, that we don't understand, who are just different people that rub us the wrong way. So how do we love other messy people? How do we love people? How are we intentional about loving these individuals? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that the Bible is not just an irrelevant collection of books that form our library of what we call the Bible today. I think that the Bible is extremely relevant back then in Old Testament and New Testament times as it is today. So what I want us to do is I want us to go to the fourth book of the New Testament. And we're going to have the words on the screen in just a moment, not yet, but in just a moment. I want us to go to the fourth book of the New Testament. It's called a gospel or good news. And what I love about this book that we're going to look at, John, is that everything that John wrote was because he was an eyewitness to what Jesus did and what Jesus said. So anything that Jesus said and anything that Jesus did, John heard it, and John saw it. And John said, okay, I'm going to write this down so that people years from now will be able to have an account of the things that Jesus did and the words that Jesus said. And today, we're going to peek into this moment in Jesus' life. It's kind of an extraordinary moment. It's kind of a moment where you're like, man, I can't believe that happened, but it did. But in this moment, Jesus is going to teach us a very important principle of how we can love people and we can be intentional about loving people who are not like us, people who are messy, people that we just might not have any time for. So if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. If you don't, that's okay, because we're going to have the words on the screen right now. Now I'm going to read just the first few verses here. Listen to this. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And I'm just going to read the beginning part of verse 6, and we're going to stop right in the middle of verse 6. It says that they were using this trap as a question in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, if you're not familiar, let me set the scene for you. Jesus is teaching to a whole bunch of people, and you have his disciples over here, or what we call students who are listening to him. You have a crowd around him, and then you have these Pharisees or teachers of the law. Okay, these are the Bible know-it-alls. Know anybody like that? Okay, these are Bible know-it-alls on steroids. They had the Bible memorized, word for word, everything. Then they had commentaries on the Bible memorized, and commentaries on those commentaries. I mean, these individuals probably still live with their mom and dad at the age of 60 and lived in the basement. They had no life whatsoever. They had like 13 PhDs, and they hated Jesus because Jesus led from a place of, of, of 
conviction and compassion. And they led from a place of fear and rule keeping because if you can get people to be afraid and keep a list of rules, they are easily controlled. And Jesus came in preaching grace and just really started upsetting their apple carts. They couldn't stand him. They were looking for any chance to be able to catch him, uh, to defame him, or even to kill him. And so they find this woman in the act of adultery. We have no idea how they found her. I mean, they're creepers, right? And so they get her, and they drag her through town, and they put her before Jesus, and they say, in Deuteronomy 22, Moses commands us to stone such women. And by the way, in Deuteronomy 22, it does say, it's a different context, different sermon. Dave can preach on that later on. It's just a totally different circumstance. But God does say, if you find a man and a woman in the act of adultery, take them outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? A man or a woman. And I would look at this story, I'm like, where's the dude? Right? And I guess what really makes me mad is they don't care about helping this woman. They don't care about restoring her. They don't care about mentoring her, shepherding her. They don't care about what she's been through. They are using her as much as the man who was having an affair with her was using her in that moment. Now, I don't care who you are. That's messed up, right? And they don't care that she dies as long as they're right. And so I don't know how you would react. But this, Jesus does something a little awkward. And some of you are like, Caleb, don't call what Jesus does awkward. But, but he does awkward things some of the times. I didn't say they were bad awkward. But Jesus just does things that nobody else would ever do. Like, he has healed people without even touching them, without even being in the same town. He has healed people just by saying the words, but then he'll just do things some of the times, and you're like, why did he do that? Like, there's this one story about this blind man who wanted to be healed by Jesus, and Jesus spit in the dirt and made mud and wiped it on his eyes. Gross, right? When he healed other blind people without even doing that, And so this is what Jesus does right here. Look at the end of verse 6. This is his response. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's awkward. You're like, no, it's not. Okay, when was the last time you were in an argument with somebody, like your spouse or your friend? You're like, hold on. I tried it with my wife, Amy. It did not go over well. I don't suggest it, by the way. And so a lot of people were trying to figure out what was it that Jesus was writing. You know, some people think that maybe he was writing different verses of Scripture. Other people think maybe he was writing, um, uh, you know, the sins of the people who were there. But I found this really, really interested, um, interesting uh, verse all the way back in the Old Testament. All the way back, this guy named Jeremiah says this, and see if you can make the connection. It's Jeremiah 13, verse 17. It says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. And all who forsake you will be put to shame. And those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And that word for dust right there, it can also mean dirt, ground, earth, mud, whatever. And if I were a betting person, I think that Jesus was actually writing the names of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the ground. I think he was saying, hey, you think that this woman has forsaken the Lord and she's outside of grace, but you are outside of grace because you have all the conviction, you have no compassion whatsoever. But they don't get it. And you can just tell that they don't get it because when you go back and you look at verse 7, it says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now, you don't even have to go to church on a regular basis to know this, right? Right? Because you've heard it before. 
You know, they're casting stones. You know, ye without sin cast the first stone. But what we don't see is the brilliance of what Jesus is doing right here because they started out thinking that they had Jesus in a checkmate. He's got them in a checkmate right now because he knows that they will not throw a stone. You see, they believed back then, just like the leadership of this church believes, that God is the only sinless being in existence. He's the only perfect being in existence. And so if they picked up a rock and they threw it, they would be guilty of lying. And God thought that lying was such a big deal that out of the 613 commands in the Old Testament, he put that one in the top 10. Remember that? Thou shalt not bear false witness, KJV style. But he also knows that they're not going to pick up a rock and throw it. Because if they picked up a rock and threw it, that very same rock that they threw would be used to kill them. You see, if they said that they were sinless, that's tantamount to claiming that you're God. That's blasphemy. And blasphemy automatically gets the death penalty. Now, I tell people all the time, you may not believe in Jesus yet, but you got to admit it. He's got mad skills. You don't want to get in an argument with him, and, and you can see that they have nothing left. I love this. Look at verse 9. It says that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then this last part of verse 11, if you feel like underlining it in your Bible, that's fine. I want you to make a note of it. But right here, this is the whole reason why we ended up going through this passage. Right here, Jesus tells us how we should love people who are different from us, who are messy, that are not like us, or that are difficult. This is what he says. It's one, original, one long sentence in the original language. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus right there says, neither do I condemn you, grace. Now go and leave your life of sin, truth. You see, Jesus says that if you and I are supposed to be intentional about loving messy people, we should love them in both grace and truth. You can't take sides. You have to stand for both grace and truth. And as a matter of fact, in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17, John actually writes that Jesus Christ came full of both grace and truth. Now, I'm willing to bet that those of us in this room right here, that we could probably be divided up into two groups. There are some of you who really identify with the grace side, some of you who really identify with the truth side. And you can probably say that a little bit differently. Some of you really identify with the mercy over here, and some of you really identify with the, with the rule-keeping, because rules control the fun, right? And they're important, but I want to make a, a statement here, and you may or may not agree with me, and that's fine. My wife doesn't agree with half of what I say. But I think that you can be saved and say, I'm either all about the grace or all about the truth. But don't ever call yourself a mature follower of Jesus if you say, I'm just about the grace or I'm just about the truth. Because that's not intentional. And there's no power in that whatsoever. You know what it's like? It's weak. It's flimsy. It's like holding a rubber band by one side when you say, I'm just all about the grace but no truth. You know? I mean, that's kind of, you know, what do you do with that? That's just ridiculous, right? And, and these are people that say they're all about the grace but not truth. And we love these people, but they're annoying, right? These are the people that say, God loves you. God loves everybody. God loves, God loves. They sweep things underneath the carpet. And I'm convinced that their version of God is a cross between Buddy the Elf and Olaf. That's how they view God, Okay? But then over here, this is weak and flimsy as well. 
If you say, I'm all about the truth, but no grace. And we love these people, but they're annoying too, right? These are the people that know the Bible, and they want you to know that they know the Bible, right? These are the people that are so spiritually mature, they add extra syllables to Jesus' name when they say it. They don't say Jesus, they say Jesus when they talk about the Lord like this. But it's weak and it's flimsy. But you want to know where the power is? Tell me where the power is. If you say, I'm about the grace and the truth, where's the power? The power lies in the tension of the two. And we run away from tension because it's uncomfortable. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. That's why we call it tension. If it was comfortable, we'd call it something else. But we don't like tension. But yet, when you run away from tension, you're running away from a lot more. And, and I know what this tension is. It's love. You see, I believe that love is the tension of grace and truth. And when you decide that you are not going to live in the tension of grace and truth, then you're just running away from, ten- from love. Just over here and over here. And, and you feel this tension all the time. It's like, man, God's word says this. My friend keeps on doing this. But, you know, the Bible says this. But I'm struggling with this. But, you know, God says this in Matthew. And my friend is making this decision over here. And we just, we feel this tension. But it's love. And when you make a choice to be on the side of just grace or just truth, you're making a choice not to stand for love, not to love people. Because the most Christ-like thing you can do is to quit taking sides and to say, I will stand for both grace and truth. Because Christianity is a faith of tension. And some of you, thanks for that. Some of you, listen to me on this, you don't agree with me. You're like, there's no tension in Christianity. Oh, really? You might want to find another religion then. You say, how's that? Okay, I believe in one God but the Trinity, like there's no tension there. I believe that God inspired the Bible but had people write it. I believe that death and evil were, defeat, were defeated at the resurrection, but they're not yet destroyed. I believe that God is all-powerful and in control, but he gives us responsibility and free will. I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. I believe that you can be a good preacher and still have hair. Come on! <laughs> There's tension throughout our faith. Why is it? that we don't want to embrace the tension of grace and truth in our relationships like we do the rest of our theology. i tell you why. Because it's harder in relationships, because a lot of emotion is attached there, and because we are not willing to do the hard work to become more like Christ. So who's the messy person in your life? I want to tell you about the messy people in my life, if that's okay. It's my mom and my dad. You see, when I was just two years old, they were both um, professors at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and Stevens College and different colleges. Um, and when, the, when I was two, they both uh, divorced and went into same-sex relationships, both of them. And so my whole childhood, I was raised in the LGBTQ community. And my dad was in the closet. I didn't find out about him until later on, and he had a lot of friends. But my mom had a 22-year relationship with a woman named Vera. And they were together until she died of cancer. Who, and they moved to Kansas City. She was a psychologist, and they, they became activists. They joined the local board of directors for GLAD. Gay and Lesbian Awareness Against Discrimination or Defamation. They uh, took me with them when I was in preschool and elementary age to um, nightclubs and parties and bars and uh, house parties and campouts and pride parades. I remember when I was in elementary school, I was marching with my mom in this pride parade. And at the end of the parade, there were all these quote-unquote Christians on the corner holding up signs saying, God has no room for you, turn or burn. 
And if that wasn't offensive enough, when people from the parade would try to go talk to them, they'd spray water and urine all over them at the same time. And I asked my mom, why are they acting like this? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. And, and Christians hate gay people. And I was just like, man, there's nothing inside of me that wants to be like that. And so I, I ended up growing up with this idea that, that Christians hated uh, people who are gay or lesbian or identified that way. I remember we visited one of my mom's friends, a young man who contracted um, AIDS back in the 1980s when people were just discovering what AIDS was. And we went into his room and his Christian family were there reading their Bibles, but they were lined up against the wall like they were waiting for a firing squad. And here their son was dying of AIDS and they wouldn't talk to him. They wouldn't talk to us. They wouldn't touch him because they didn't want to catch anything or anything like that. And I looked at my mom and I said, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. And Christians hate gay people. And I said, I never want the name Christian to ever be associated with me. And by the time I got to high school, I mean, my, I had no centered worldview. My life was just kind of all over the place. I was sneaking out at night, partying it up. I mean, my hair was down to here. And since then, the Lord removeth and addeth other places. It's not funny. It's not funny. We don't talk about that. But I ended up getting invited by a high school friend to go to a Bible study that he was leading for high schoolers in the basement of his house. And I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to go, and I'm going to be a pretend Christian, a ninja Christian, and I'm going to learn about their faith, and I'm going to dismantle it. And so I showed up at their house for this Bible study. And with what I'm getting ready to say, I just want to let you know, I don't want you to be offended because I love Bible bookstores. I think they're great. Um, and, and God bless the people in this household. It looked like they had raided a Bible bookstore. I mean, they had all the pictures on the wall and the statues. I walked in. It was even the potpourri smell. You know what I'm talking about? And then they had the nasty Christian breath mints, the testaments right by the door. It tastes like a cross between peppermint and cyanide. And I'm looking on the wall, and they have all these different, like, Bible bookstore paintings, and I look at my friend, I'm like, why do these people have framed pictures of sheep and lions on their wall with Bible verses? I've never been in a household where somebody had a framed picture of a sheep. I'm like, is that part of the deal? If you turn Christian, do you have to get a sheep picture? Because I'm out, not doing it. And to this day, I still don't have a framed sheep on my wall. But I went downstairs to the basement, and we circled up, and everybody was reading a nice verse from 1 Corinthians you know, that Paul wrote, and I was in First Chronicles, and they get to me, and I read a verse about somebody being impaled, and so they learned real quick that I wasn't a Christian, and they said, where are you? And I said, I'm in First Chronicles, and they said, oh, you're in the Old Testament, and I said, well, so there's a new one, I guess. There's updated 2.0. I had no clue. I just thought that the Bible was an old collection of irrelevant, dusty books, but here's what I learned real quick, that Jesus was not like the people on the street corners. He was not like the people in the hospital room. Jesus loved messy people, and he was intentional about it. That Jesus had, had very, very deep uh, expectations for how you and I should live our lives, that we would call holiness or sanctification, becoming more like him. And he also had very deep theological convictions, and while at the same time, he had very deep and meaningful relationships with people that were not like him, people that, that society had pushed to the side had marginalized and wanted nothing to do with. And I was like, I can get on board with, with Jesus. And in a matter of months, I ended up giving my life to Christ. I ended up getting baptized without telling my parents. It was a CIA covert operation. And I ended up deciding that I wanted to be a pastor. And then I was so nervous to tell my parents, my three gay parents, because if you can imagine how 
a same-sex attracted or gay or lesbian teenager feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old coming out as a Christian to my three LGBTQ parents. It was my coming out to them, and when I did, they kicked me out. They said, no, you're one of them now. And so the same experience that some same-sex attracted or gay teenagers have gotten from their conservative Christian parents I got from mine. And my whole life is ironic to me. My whole life, my mom had preached tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. But when I believed something differently than she did, she decided to let fear control her emotions. And fear will allow you to do horrible things to other people. I mean, it's kind of like my little green friend Yoda says in Star Wars 1. You know, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. But I spent the night with friends that in, in this church that I was attending, and I ended up going home whenever school was over, and I just read the Bible, I read the Bible, I read the Bible, and here's what I learned. The relationship with Jesus gives you the margin to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. There are things that happen to us in this life that are hard for us to forgive, that we can't forgive on our own, that we've got to lean into the power of Jesus to be able to do that. And so when I ended up, you know, finishing up uh, high school, I went to um, Bible college in southern Missouri. Uh, anybody ever been to southern Missouri? Yeah, a couple of you? Okay, good. So I'm going to rip on it, by the way. I'm from Missouri, so I can do that. But you know how many states have family trees that blossom? Well, not southern Missouri. It's just it's one pole that goes straight up like that. That's the family tree line in southern Missouri. It's really an interesting place, not a place you want to vacation, but you know, whatever. So I went to this Bible college, and the cool thing about going to it was I got to preach at all these little country churches when I was started being a freshman in Bible college. My third week of Bible college, I preached my very first sermon, and it was in a church called Hepler Christian Church in Hepler, Kansas. I still remember it. There were six people in the church. The youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group of like <laughs> 40-year-olds, I guess. I have no clue. And then the second church I ever preached at was this church in the middle of Missouri, and in Richards, Missouri. And I preached there for 18 months, and we had 50 people in the town. 25 of them went to our church. We were the largest church per capita in the world at that time, I think, because we had half our town, one for Christ, right? And so I kept on preaching there, grace and truth and so on and so forth. And this one Sunday, I convinced my mom to come to church with me, and I was so excited because she decided to come. And so people were kind of cold and distant towards her, and I'm like, oh. you know, it, it was like weird. But at the same time, they were excited because we got a huge attendance bump from 25 to 26. It just went like that, the statistics. <laughs> the next Sunday, I showed up to preach, and there were two elders waiting for me on the doorstep. And they said, we'd like to talk to you. And they took me back to the back room. We, we had two rooms in this building. We had the front room, we had the back room, and the back room was for children but no children had been in this town for like 20 years. It was kind of a creepy Nightmare on Elm Street type scene. And so we went back there, and they sat me down. They said, Caleb, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, well, I don't like you, so I quit. And they said, well, you can't quit today. You, this has got to be your last Sunday, but, you know, we still need you to preach. And I said, oh, you don't want me to preach after this. Trust me, out of all the things, you don't want that to happen. They said, no, we do. And so I went up there. 
and I preached, and I took out my sermon I had written, and I ripped it up. It was on fasting. Who cares about that, right? And so I got up there, and I just started preaching the sermon about loving God and loving people, and I walked out of there, and I said, God, if you ever give me the chance to be able to lead a church, to be able to be at a pastor, I want to be at a church that loves messy people, broken people. I want to be at a church that's filled with people who are cutting, who have had abortions, who have had divorces, who can't figure their lives out, who think they have it together, who keep on using, who are questioning their sexuality, who are struggling with depression, who are struggling with medical conditions, people who are younger, people who are older, because that's what the church is. The church is really a beautiful mosaic of messy, broken lives, and that's what God unites together to glorify himself. It's through our brokenness and our messiness. Now, hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. Okay? Jesus Christ never intended the church to be some members-only country club where everybody looks alike and their lives are just the same. Let me say it in a different way. I don't believe for one second that Jesus Christ died on the cross for a church that is really not a church, just masquerading as one when it's really a Pharisee factory. And some of those churches have gone away, and unless they decide to change and repent, they probably should. And so when I graduated from college, I ended up moving out to Los Angeles. And I was on staff for 11 years at a shepherd church in the Los Angeles area where I met Dave and Mike. And uh, amazing things happened while I was there. I got married to, this, uh, to my wife, Amy. And if you met her, she's, she's great. She's uh, tall, beautiful, olive skin who can tan, toned, muy caliente Latina. <laughs> and in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Uncle Fester and Dr. Evil. She had no clue whatsoever. Okay, you can laugh, but this, this is the eye candy she wakes up to every morning, okay? She, she is a lucky, lucky lady, let me tell you that right now. And we had a couple kids, and during that time, um, my mother's partner died, and unless a miracle happened, she died without Jesus. And uh, my, my family and I, we moved to Dallas, Texas to preach and uh, I took a position as a senior pastor at a church, and my wife started studying for a counseling degree. And after we moved there, my parents, separately of one another, said, can we move down to be closer to your family in Dallas? And I was like, sure, but I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know if, like, the walls would bleed or pigs would fly or anything like that. And then they said, can we start coming to your church? I said, you want to come to my church? And they said, yeah. I said, you know what we believe about relationship? Yeah. Well, come on. And they came, and three and a half weeks, or two weeks before we left to move back to Southern California, both of my mom and dad, both of them, gave their lives to Jesus for the very first time. And so I asked them, I said, how did this happen? What, 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 what was it? Because you went to a church that disagreed with, with you theologically. Because I believed then, I still believe now, that God defines sexual intimacy as something he created in marriage between a man and a woman. And he said, well, they said it was very easy. People treated us like people, not like projects. People treated us like human beings. See, that's why I say, man, love is the tension of grace and truth. So how do we live in this tension? Here are just a few things. If you want to write them down, that's fine. Take a picture. If not, feel free to check your text messages, okay? First one is this. Change your posture be known for what you're for, not against. Change your posture. Be known for what you're for, not against. Jesus 
was for this woman in John chapter 8. He was for her redemption. He was for her repentance. He was for her becoming more like him. But he did not treat her horribly. Be known for what you're for, not against. Okay? Here's the second one right here. A theological conviction should never be a catalyst to treat someone less. A theological conviction shouldn't be a catalyst to treat someone less. If your theology allows you to treat someone less, you might be right and orthodox about what you believe, but commit heresy by how you carry it out. You see, were the Pharisees right in calling her act of affair or sexual intimacy outside of marriage a sin? Yes. Were they wrong in wanting to kill her? Yes. You see, you can be known for what you're for, not against, and you can still stand for truth. I believe that our differences with other people should drive us to them, not from them. I believe that if our theology doesn't cause us to love people the more, then we don't understand our theology. Here's the third one. I think it's already up there. Think deeper about the person, not differently about theology. Okay? Some of us, we feel like when somebody comes out to us or somebody's involved in, in a, uh, a life choice that we may not agree with, we feel like we either have to distance ourselves from them or we have to end up changing our, our ethics, our morals, or our theology in order to keep the relationship. But if you did that, you'd always be changing your theology, morals, and, and ethics. And if you distance yourself from them, eventually you're going to be distancing yourself from everyone, and eventually you're going to be bitter and alone. You see, I'm asking you to think deeper about the person. I'm asking you to be empathetic. Empathetic is not agreeing with everything that somebody does. Empathetic is committing to walk with someone. Brene Brown says that empathy is actually feeling with someone. Reggie Joyner says that empathy is putting your own feelings on pause long enough to be able to feel what someone else is feeling. You see, there's no person in here that's shallow. Everybody is a collection of your experiences and, and your hurts and your pains and your dreams and your joys and your upbringing and what you've been through in life. And, and, and no person is shallow. So don't ever just label somebody and treat them like that. Everybody's deep, okay? The fourth one is this. Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. These are two very different things. Acceptance is about loving somebody for where they are, who they are in that moment. But approval is about throwing your support behind somebody's life choice. I think acceptance is a biblical mandate. If you don't believe me, go read Matthew 5, 38 through 48, or Romans 12, 9 through 18. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 46, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Anyone can do that. And then Paul says in Romans 12, 18, uh, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. So both Jesus and Paul say that my love for other people is supposed to, you know, is, is dependent on me, not them, not how they treat me, but me. Yes, exactly. Because God never holds you accountable for someone else. God holds you accountable for you and your emotions and your reactions and how you treat people. And the best way to treat people is with graciousness and kindness. Paul says in Romans 2, 4, don't you know that it's the kindness of God that has led you to repentance? And I think if God's people, if, if God's kindness has led people to repentance, shouldn't my kindness towards them lead them towards God? You have to accept people. That doesn't mean you approve of life choices. Here's the very last thing, okay? Quit trying to fix people. Just point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus in grace and truth. 
You see, here, here's what I believe that the gospel is. I believe that the gospel is the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for my sins, for my shame, for your shame, for my guilt, for your guilt, for how we feel. And in that one moment of time, God said, I'm going, anybody who has faith in me, I'm going to look at Jesus, and then I'm going to look at them, and they're going to be covered. You see, you and I can't change our lives. We can change our lives for the worse, and too often we think, oh, I've got to fix somebody and bring them to church. I've got to fix somebody and bring them to a Bible study. I gotta, no, you can't fix anybody. If you're following Jesus, you've already admitted you're powerless and you can't fix anybody. That's the uh, reason why you repented, right? We call this word repentance, doing a 180-degree turn. You are powerless to change yourself. You have to trust in Jesus because Jesus loves messy people. God does. God is passionate about you. And God doesn't only, only love you, he really, really likes you. No matter how other Christians have treated you. God loves messy people. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give just a time of response while we pray. Then after I get done, Dave's going to come back up. He's going to talk for a second. But um, don't let other Christians push you away from who Jesus Christ is. You look to Jesus, and you start attending a church like this one, a church that believes it's okay not to be okay. Let me pray for you. Lord, there are people in this room who are hurting, who have carried baggage with them. And I want everybody to have their eyes closed, their heads bowed, or at least just their eyes closed right now. And if you're somebody that is just hurting right now, just raise your hand if you need prayer right now. Just raise your hand if you're hurting. Thank you. If you're somebody in here that feels like they have wandered away from God, that they're not following God, somebody who wants to get back on the path, maybe you're somebody you thought you were on the path, but today you realize that you've been treating people as less, and you need prayer for that, just raise your hand right now. Just raise your hand right now. And if you're someone that is not following Jesus right now, that you've come to a church like this before, maybe you've been coming here for a while, this could be your first time, and you came to just kick the tires and check underneath the hood, but you just really feel like maybe God is leading you to ask great questions about Jesus, or you feel like you're at the point where you say, I'm ready to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want you to raise your hand right now. Lord, I want to pray for all these people. I want to pray that we will be people of both grace and truth. I want to pray that we will be people who love you and who love messy people. That we will not treat people differently. That we will not run people down. But that we will treat people with respect and kindness. I pray right now, Lord, that you will help us those of us who have been far away from church for a while and we're coming back or we have never accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, I pray that today could be the start of a new season in our life, a new season where we actually accept Jesus, decide to follow him, and realize that it's still okay to follow Jesus and not be okay and not believe that everything that everybody else believes around us, but the most important thing is a relationship with Jesus. Thank you so much for this time in this church. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. God bless you guys.
Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.